Hi there, I'm Babita, one of the presenters for this podcast, Mum Will the Planet Die Before I Do? In this episode, Katie and I chat to Professor Tim Jackson, who is the director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, CUSP. Tim has advised the UK government, the United Nations and countless other organisations about achieving economic prosperity while protecting Earth and its finite resources. But today, he is talking to us about the emotional and psychological challenges parents and carers are facing navigating this climate crisis. And he also offers solutions that catch us by surprise. We asked him how his phenomenal career has helped him as a father, and this is what he told us. I think, you know, the, the joke is, first of all, does anybody know how to be a parent? <laughs> because if they do, please tell me. And then does anyone know how to parent during a climate crisis? Um, and, and even if you know something about the climate, I don't think it kind of makes you an expert. So I... I'm abdicating all responsibility. For well, any... then we've got no hope. <laughs> got no, but no do you know hope. what? I find that also really reassuring because the fact is this is such an unprecedented time in human history, isn't it? This, we're facing the kind of most monumental challenge ever. So we're all in the same boat as parents, aren't we? No one, yeah. know, no one knows the complete get out, however much you know about science and the economy and yeah. you know whatever no one knows but we're just trying to kind of learn from experts putting our hands up as parents saying we just we know that there's an enormous challenge we just we just don't know what to do about it i think i think putting your hands up is a is a good strategy um because it's almost as though you know the pretense that you know what you're doing can be quite damaging in a way what do we need to be thinking about to help our kids or to answer those demands of those young people on the streets in Glasgow and everywhere else around the world or you know how what should we be doing well you know you're kind of asking me about this in relation to parenthood and and so and so I think it's a really tricky one because that generation will kind of say you you can stick your climate crisis up your ass and you know I shouldn't be here Um, you should be solving the problem I should be back in school doing what kids do and I think that's right, but I still, I still think that it's a very, very fine line between, I don't know, it's a fine line between everything. It's almost like there is, there's an impossible thing to do here, which is both to support our kids in that sensation, in that rage, if you like, in that outrage, and possibly even to lead them to it if they're not the kids who are naturally attracted to being out on a cold day in the middle of November, protesting against what adults are not doing for them. You know, so that supporting role I still think is important. And I'm not, and that's not to abdicate our responsibility, the responsibility of our generation at all. It is though to play, you know, a parenting role and in relation to to those emotions and those difficult things that are going on. And we should also, I think, of course, support them in thinking in the challenge, because the challenge is a challenge which is is felt deeply and emotionally as fears about their own future. And so I do think that, you know, responsibility as a parent is partly to give them a way of navigating that fear, whatever those ways are. We can, you know, talk a little bit more about that. But that is none of that is to abdicate or or in any sense to impose that responsibility on our kids. I think, you know, we have to somehow free ourselves certainly from that but we also have to free ourselves from the sense that we are the only people responsible for it in the entire world 
I don't know. I mean, I kind of think of my role as a parent, generally speaking, or try to, you know, if I have a philosophy on it, it is that they are beings who have come into the world at a particular time on a particular path and their challenges are the challenges of that particular path at that particular time. And so am I. But it's a different time and it precedes their time and it will be over before their time is over. And then and this sense actually almost like an equalizing sense of between parent and child, I think is a very powerful one because it allows you to separate yourself, your path from the path of your children and to see them as separate things, not not to deny your responsibility for them, but to deny the the sort of comforting illusion that you can control everything about their lives and that that's your role to do that. Wow, because I think that's the first time I've heard anybody, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it's the first time I've heard anybody say that it'll be over before their life is essentially over. So from that, are we then thinking that there, there is a solution to this crisis that we're currently in? And you're optimistic about that. I, I don't know, Babita, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that because I, because I think, you know, that challenge is going to go on and on for quite a long time, I guess. Mm. And so wherever we get to it, by the time, you know, my time is done, so to speak, there's still going to be that challenge. It's still going to be a challenging world for my kids. And the way the challenges they will face will go on after me. So there is always a sense to me that I can never fix all their problems. Yeah. And and it isn't my responsibility to. That I do think we we do have a responsibility as a generation to be doing what grown-ups should be doing. And that, you know, that's what makes me crossest in a way about about um COP26 because I think our leadership failed spectacularly. I mean, they're beginning to try to spin it as an outstanding success, and I think it was a spectacular failure of leadership. Um, and and that makes me cross. It makes me angry, and I feel that with the anger of the kids on the streets. But I also feel it for myself, because I have been working for three decades, you know, with this, that science. You know, for for more than thirty years, the science has been crystal clear, as Greta said in that very famous speech that she gave in um, New York a couple of years ago. And that's the truth. And I have lived alongside the clarity of that science over 30 years. And I've worked in policy to try and change things. I've worked with my own students to try and understand things and my own research to look at solutions to them. And I know that those solutions exist. I know that there are changes that are possible. I know that actually our lives and the lives of our kids could potentially be better through those changes. And yet I've also watched astounding failures of leadership. When I think about Mia, who is two, my daughter, and, you know, she might listen to this in 20, 30 years time. Should I be telling her, should I be teaching her about this is what needs to happen? We need to change the infrastructure. We need to change the way society operates. Is that what I need to tell her? And if so, how do I find out about that? Do I need to educate myself even more about that? Because at the moment I feel so everything is just so clouded and then it's a lot of noise and I'm trying to work my way through it and I just don't even know where to start. Well, I think to the extent that you can find your way through that, then I think, yes, it's something that you can get. I mean, I have to say that I found it incredibly difficult as a parent, even though I was an expert in it. And um, 
I, and I think that's right, actually. I think it's right that we find it difficult. I, I mean, I, when I think about my relationship to my children, I always go back to a poem that um, we had read at the, at the uh, dedication of my, my first child, which is a poem by Khalil Gibran, just on children. And, and it starts, your children are not your children. Um, they're the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. You can give them your love, but not your thoughts. You can house their bodies, but not their souls. And then there's this wonderful section. So this, their souls dwell in the house of the future, the house of tomorrow, which you may not visit, not even in your dreams. And it's it's this kind of, it's this, it, it gives you a very clear sense of what you can and you can't do with your kids and you can't indoctrinate them. So even though I have this deep scientific knowledge and my own views about that knowledge in relation to climate change, I can certainly facilitate their own learning of that. But to some extent, when you look at the kind of kids on the street, I, I don't need to be doing that anymore because that's already kind of out there and they're living it and they're learning it. But I can't and I shouldn't be, you know, I, I've, I've very strongly felt with my own kids and my own, and particularly in relation to this issue, that I do not impose on them the, the world or the changes that I see as necessary or the responsibility that I've carried uh, or the ways that I've engaged in it, because that's not my job. I really get what you're saying, but equally, I don't know for myself as a parent what to mm. where my responsibility begins and ends yeah I, I get that I get that I mean I think in a way though what I'm trying to say is that that task is a separate task from the task of parenting it, it exists irrespective of whether you have those kids and it exists irrespective of what your role is with with those kids as well in a way so I mean I think I think I'm trying to say there's there's a, a limit to how much you can do that for them or how much they need you to do it for them. There's no limit to, to what they require of you in terms of love and support through the difficulty of all that. There's absolutely there no limit to limit, that. Though. There is a there time is limit, There is a time limit. But that time limit is to some extent, you know, what you're talking about is what can I do now as a person as much as what can I do now as a parent? I think so. But also, you know, if I know that in 30 years, there won't be jobs in the city, for example, do we then say to our kids in practical terms, um, when we're helping them decide what to do with their lives, are we saying to them, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what you think about how the world is going to look when they're older will we will we have a different financial yeah. system if so how do we kind of prepare them for that mm. and help to transition them to that equally bearing in mind what you said of they're their own person mm. um, I just don't know yeah no I mean I that of course of course to say that their own person is not to again it's not to sort of say as a parent you have no responsibility in helping them to find their way into that future but I'm always struck really, you know, I think there is something that goes on with generations that they know their future better than their parents do. Even though they've come into the world and they're very young in it and inexperienced in it, and you would think that all that parental experience would give you more foresight about the future. I don't think it does. I think that kids see 
their own future more clearly than their parents do. And so, you know, I remember this from, you know, being a kid uh, and my, you know, my own parents trying to tell me what they thought was the right profession to be in and where security lay and how I should change my education as a result of it and what course I should take. And of course, I mean, actually, I was in a generation where we listened to that a lot more, I think, than kids do now because they have so many other influences in their lives. But I don't think that what I listened to was correct, ultimately. I think at that point, my own sense of where the future lay and the challenges that it held was more informed than my parents was because I was at because I was of that different generation because I saw these different things coming down the road at me because the insecurities I faced were different from the ones that my parents faced and for all of those reasons you know without that hope hopefully without that sounding too arrogant because I think actually every generation does this they all every generation kind of resists the, the overbearing influence of, of, of the, the previous generation, telling them what should be and what's right in the world. So I, I guess I'm kind of trying to say that I, I tried with my own kids, I have tried with my own kids to transfer that trust to them in their own sense of what the future holds and the challenges it holds and to defer to them even, you know, my own judgment about what those how those challenges should be negotiated for them i'm getting you more now but what i still am stuck on is thinking to myself my youngest is eight martha um if i don't do what i need to do in my generation what what will her life look like i mean i know this is realities that parents around the world are dealing with at the moment who are far further along down the line of the climate crisis if I don't do the work that I need to do as me in this generation I I it, it literally fills me with yeah horror to, yeah. to think what her life will be like I mean you know that's your horror and it's our horror and it is our responsibility and it is our job in in as a generation of people who are at least um, you know, not supposed to be in school messing around, having fun with their friends, but actually out in the world creating change and making things better, not just for our kids as it happens, but also for, you know, kids all over the world, kids yet unborn, generations still to come. I think that's right. I think we do have that responsibility. And there, and, and this is this is a slightly separate conversation to me than the parenting conversation, because it's about you know, what do you do in a fucked up world? And, and I think you, you, the first point is kind of recognising where you are in that world and what your responsibilities to it are. And the, and the, second, and the second is then rec- understanding what you can as a person do in relation to change within that world. So and, tell us about that. I think that's what we're desperate to know. Um, you know, there's lots of talk about uprooting the system, changing the way that we bank, changing the, our economies, GDP not being such a significant thing. So what, what are your, what can you teach us about that? 
I, I, I can lecture you, you know, about the, the dangers and the difficulties of capitalism and how they're embedded in the system and how we need to move away from those and what business has to do and what the economy has to do, how investment has to be different, how education should be different, how our health systems and the care economy could be a stronger part. I could do all that for you, but that's not to, it doesn't answer your question in a way, because your question is really, what can I do? What can I in my life at this time do? And that's a very individual question. So the kinds of things that people can do obviously are where you work and where you choose to work and how you choose to work in that system matters. It really matters. And and equally how you spend your money matters. And, and equally how you, you know, just to get really very simple, how you insulate your home matters. All of those things are things that you can do that people can do and the question of what what they should do at any one moment in time really you know i think is very very individually dependent and particularly when it comes to work and the, the allocation of your kind of time into the into social agency into social action i could almost cry with relief because i think as a parent seeing that we're at this kind of brink of catastrophe I think we have this thing of like I need to save the world I need to save the world so what you're saying is almost like you have to let that go a massive relief in a way of just thinking it's it's everyone's individuals aren't they it's not potentially about just me or Babita uprooting the system and and saving the world I was just not everybody thinks like that though so therefore, when you look to leadership on a local level, on a national level, on an international level, and, and it's failing, where do we go from there? Well, that, you know, that, in, that, is, that is a really difficult question. And I think, and it's something that I've kind of, you know, written about and, um, and, and, and thought about. And I, you know, I, I believe that we do have a duty to, towards social activism, towards social agency. And I think we even, when it comes to it, have a duty towards civil disobedience. So, so you know, we live inside a political system which is supposed to represent our interests and we vote for governments which are supposed to protect those interests. When we find that that job is not happening properly, of course we have a recourse to the ballot box and we can vote them out if we, you know, if we have enough sufficient democratic power in society to do that. At certain stages in society, though, and this is written into the DNA of political democracy, there is a legitimacy to civil disobedience. And, and that, I think, is partly what we're seeing on the streets and partly what, you know, Fridays for the Future and Extinction Rebellion and even, although we may hate their tactics, insulate Britain are doing is they are exercising the rights to civil disobedience in the face of an irresponsibility at the level of the legitimately positioned government and and that's if you read political democracy if you read political theory you find that concept and that idea right at the heart of the original ideas about political democracy as we live in it yeah i don't necessarily a fan of that so i'm just going to say that out there in in what sense babies i mean would you for example think fridays for the future is something that verges on something you wouldn't want to do or no i no so that, you see to me that's not civil disobedience i think you know laying down and i know it's controversial like you know blocking motorways or whatever you're getting your voice heard but you're pissing a lot of people off 
who you almost want to get on board on the conversation yeah. in a more constructive way. But they're so, not getting on board, though. That's the problem. Well, that's what I. Well, that's that's it, isn't it? It's like where do we go with and how do you term civil disobedience? Because actually, marching and having an incredible gathering of people, like-minded people. Who says that's civil disobedience? Well, it's not. It's incredible. It's, it is it's for Friday's the future, though, because those kids are taking time off school. Off school. Exactly. That's where it started, that little concept. And it was tiny. You know, that's, that's one of the things that sort of gives a clue to, or, or at least gives a clue to, the, to what our response should be feeling powerless. And actually it comes from that one individual sitting, taking that time out of school, being disobedient taking the time out of school to make the point do you think we're really naive having this conversation with you like do we are we irresponsible for coming to this conversation so late no no not at all um you know it's a conversation very much of our time I mean that's in a way kind of why it's still shocking to me going from Fridays for the Future with all those kids and their families out on the streets calling for the logic of the science in a way that I totally understand because I've been working inside that science for 30 years from there to the most forward political process that we have at, at our disposal to solve the problem of climate change and realizing the gulf between them you know that I, so I don't think it's naive at all I think it's you know I think it's very honest I think it's uh, it's absolutely essential I wish more people were kind of having that conversation and I think it's incredibly difficult and to and and almost you know, I think our challenge as parents in, 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 in facing that is an extraordinary challenge. I'm not saying it's more extraordinary than challenges that parents faced, for example, in periods of military conflict or that parents face now in desperate poverty. I, I, it, but it is an, an incredibly important challenge. And, and I think to be honest to ourselves, we should be doing we should be having exactly this kind of conversation because there are no textbooks that tell us how to behave in that situation. You know, and even for me, and, and you know, to just reiterate that sense of not being an expert in this, it is impossible to be an expert in this because there is no expertise to draw on. It's totally unprecedented. It's moving very fast. It's extraordinarily emotionally charged and it affects our children. And so why would we not be, you know, wanting to have that conversation? We, we can and we should. As we're doing it, if we don't pause to reflect, we can find ourselves drawn into, into the intensity of that task in potentially dysfunctional ways. You know, we, we want the best for our children. We want them to have the most. We want them to have to be safe on the way to school um, and so we want therefore comfort and we buy a four by four and we put them in the back and it's got a great barrier on the front if we have a crash it's not going to hurt my kids it's going to be fine and they will get to school safely and that matters to us and it should matter to us that our kids are safe but in the process we've bought into a road-based transport system with ever bigger cars that are always stronger and stronger so in case they in case you're the one that's in the crash and as a result you you've actually ended up making other people's lives less safe because there's too many of them on the road and because they're driving too fast and they're burning gas and they're creating climate change and that's you know it's that's but but we should not punish ourselves for 
the complexity of the motivations that underlie those decisions. We should work for ways to solve the social trap that's been created by them. I was just thinking when you were talking, it's almost like you're, we're boxing, literally, like the car gets bigger, but we're, we're creating this sort of blanket of safeness around us. But when I think about, you know, I am a child of immigrants that were refugees during the time of partition. So when I talk to my dad or attempt to talk to my dad, mum about climate change, it's like, do you know what we went through <laughs> in mm. 1947? Do you know how we walked? Do you know how we survived? And when I think about their experience in coming to Britain in the 60s and, you know, making a go of it in a time that was not and still isn't at times, but, you know, very welcoming to them um, being the first generation of people of colour in this country. They taught us about resilience and they taught us about like going yeah. for it. And so when you bring that into this whole conversation, and I know we're talking about parenting, but also just individuals and the complexities that we bring as people, then when we think about raising another human being, when we're facing a climate catastrophe those will always come to bear so our mental health and our backstory will always come into yeah. how we decide to do things and I think that everybody else's experience and I think this is what you said a while ago is individual but we yeah. have to ex respect that we do I think we do have to respect it but we can also kind of acknowledge that there is a you know there's some if not universalities then commonalities in experience and one of them is the desire to be safe and and that's you know the, the the strength of that desire, the way that it's articulated, and our responses to it are going to be different from generation to generation, from country to country, from experience to experience. But that desire to be safe is really you know is really central, and that sense of of wanting security is really central, I think, to human motivation, and so, and to, so to recognise that is is really important. And then the next step, which kind of you know, it might seem a bit paradoxical and perhaps too philosophical in a way, but I think is is the realization that there is no safety, there is no security ultimately, because the security that we're looking for is impossible to deliver, and and it it requires, in a sense, that we confront our mortality in a way that modern consumer society tries to encourage us not to. It, it tries to encourage us to see everything is going on forever and becoming more and more available and better and better and bigger and bigger and faster and faster and it's a kind of substitute for immortality and to some extent you know that's that's what we're dealing with at the moment is a conflict that arises from our our deep concern about our own mortality and actually a fatally destructive way of addressing that concern so in pursuit of that dream of security and that dream, which ultimately wants to see us become immortal, we are, we are actually in the process of undermining our own security. That philosophy of there is no safety, it makes me, my blood run cold because you see parents, kind of that, that philosophical kind of thing has hit them in the face already. But I so do we're think... staring at that reality. And, and I think I just also feel the kind of, the burden of how unfair that is. That yeah. Well, when other people are living the consequences of your need for security, then that, that of course, that's deeply unfair. And ultimately, you know, I think the, the fairness, if there is a fairness, comes in the fact that that will come home to roost. And I kind of think, I th kind of, think of that sort of biblical quote in a way. I, it comes to my mind more and more recently that, 
you know, the sins of the father are visited on the children, even unto the seventh generation, that you don't get away from pathologized things that you do in society. You, you just inflict them on other people um, who, are, who might be a long way away from you or into your future and when it will actually come back and bite, you know, your own kids and their kids, you know, it's easy to recognize that we need that everybody has a desire for security it's it's more difficult to come to that point of saying that that desire for security is to some extent a deep fear of our own mortality and then when you want to face that mortality that's a kind of you know a lifelong individual task but i also think it's a social task it's a task that if you don't if you can't make sense of our own mortality, the, the shortness of the time that we're here, the inevitability of loss or suffering in society. If you can't make sense of that, you lose, you lose the social fabric of society. It begins to fall apart. It was no accident in the sense that nihilism, for example, around the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and then the horror of the First World War, and then the kind of horror of the depression and, and societal uh, structures falling apart and unemployment and livelihoods falling apart. That was a period of loss. It was a period of deep disorientation. And it was out of that that this new theodicy, this theodicy of kind of consumerism as a, a materialistic salvation almost, was born. And that's what's been holding us together. So at the individual level, it's about, you know, how do I cope with the fact that the ones that I love are going to die? And so am I eventually. And that bad things are going to happen to my kids or to their friends or to people that I know or to my colleagues. How do I cope with that? At the societal level, we have a desperately important task to do in creating, you know, a post-consumerist theodicy, a sense of how we make sense of our of our world and our lives, and maybe that is what is happening right now. Maybe there is there is a theodicy in the making that we can't quite grapple right now, but it may come out of this. The extraordinary Professor Tim Jackson, who totally blew our minds. What an honour to get the chance to chat to him. In the next episode, we speak to the self-proclaimed mum of the climate crisis, Christiana Figueres. Christiana chats to us about how being a parent has transformed her views on the climate challenges we face and speaks candidly about trying to drive change on a global stage. Mum, will the planet die before I do? is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.
In the next episode of this series, we speak to the self-proclaimed mum of the climate crisis, Christiana Figueres. Christiana chats to us about how being a parent has transformed her views on the climate challenges we face. And she speaks to us candidly about trying to drive change on a global stage.